Well, if I say the name Jennifer Wilbanks, do any of you know who I'm talking about just by a show of hands? How about if I use the name she's probably more well-known by, The Runaway Bride? Anybody heard of The Runaway Bride? This was a story several years ago where a woman was apparently abducted one week before her wedding, and there was a national search going on in order to try to find her. Well, it turns out after a week of the whole nation trying to find out where she had went, it comes out it was all a big hoax. She had just gotten scared and hopped on a Greyhound bus and taken off and made up a big story. A few months after all that settled down, she went on the Today Show, which took a lot of courage, and she was asked this question by the interviewer. The interviewer said, what do you hope people take away from this interview, Jennifer? And I just want you to listen to her response here. She says, I hope that people will allow me to learn who I truly am. So I hope that as I go through this healing process and start to learn more about myself, accept myself, love myself for who I am, then everybody else will too, and that I will no longer be the runaway bride. Then maybe a lot of these people could call me friend or call me by my real name, Jennifer. All she really wants to find out is who she really is and for people to call her real name. Unfortunately, as I just showed, as we saw here, not many of us know her real name. And yet we do know her as the runaway bride. Her identity has been wrapped up into a label that we've attached to her. And who knows if she'll ever be able to break free from it. Well, this morning, as we continue a series we've been doing uh, basically the whole year this year in 2016, as we've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke called The Life of Christ, we come to a story about a man who had completely lost his identity as well. And the reason he lost it is he was under some serious spiritual bondage. But if you've been with us throughout the series, and even if you haven't, you might remember way back in Luke chapter 4, the first thing that Jesus does when he steps on the scene to begin his ministry is he declares a few things about what he's all about. And one of the things he declares is that he wants to set the captives free. In fact, if you're following on your notes there, one of the reasons Jesus came was to set captives free from bondage. Remember when he's back in his hometown, he goes into the synagogue, he opens up the scroll of Isaiah and he reads these words. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. One of the reasons Jesus came is to set captives free from bondage. In this series we've been doing, we've been seeing doing all those kinds of things. Restoring people's sight, bringing good news to the poor. And this morning we come to the most detailed account in the Gospels of Jesus setting a captive free. Now I'm not talking about a captive in a physical prison here. I'm talking about a captive to spiritual bondage. Specifically, he is going to set a man free who is demon-possessed. Now, I know on Sundays when we have baptisms, we often have a lot of guests, so I could only laugh when I found out the text we had this morning. We're going to be talking about a guy possessed by demons. Welcome to Cherry Hills. (laughs) Now, I don't know what you think when you hear that, but in the Western world, we don't think a whole lot about demons, do we? We don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about them. In fact, we may not even believe they exist. We might think that the people back then, 2,000 years ago, writing during this time, were simply ignorant about this whole thing. But listen, Jesus believed they existed. And it wasn't just because he was ignorant, because he wasn't. 
I remember when I was in seminary, I had some professors who used to argue that what the New Testament writers were referring to when they talk about demons, when we come across these kinds of passages in the Gospels, was they just didn't understand mental illness like we do today. And so they used demons to describe some of the various mental illnesses that people have today. But the problem with that is you have a verse like Matthew 4.24, that explodes that whole idea. Look at the verse. It says, So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Now just leave that verse up there for a second. It says they brought all kinds of sick people to him, and then it gives a list, right? It says demon-possessed people, paralyzed people, and then there's this word epileptics. But that's really not the word in Greek there. The New Testament was written in the language of Greek. In Greek, the literal word means those touched by the moon. Those touched by the moon. That was just a Greek way to describe somebody who had gone mad. Somebody who had gone insane. The point I'm making here is Matthew and Jesus understood. Listen, there's madness. There's mental insanity. They get it. But there is also the oppression of spiritual forces taking place in this world. The truth is, from the very beginning of the Bible, we are told that there is more to evil than just what we see in the physical realm. There is more to evil than just what can be explained. There's more to evil than the natural. Scripture teaches there's evil inside of us. Yes, we call that sin, right? But there's also an evil outside of us. There is natural and supernatural evil. Today, we modern people of the West, though, because we're so modern, we tend to think that evil is simply a human phenomenon, and it's something that we can fix, right? For example... Some people have taken a psychological approach to evil. They say the reason there's violence and selfishness in people is that we have psychological problems. We weren't loved properly. We didn't have, we had inadequate family backgrounds and so on and so forth. And I don't argue with any of that. But they say the way we deal with evil is through things like counseling and through medication. And again, those are good things. But I ask the question, can that really deal with all of the evil that we see around us in this world? Some people take a sociological view. They say things like racism and poverty are simply the the result of an unjust social system. And so if we could just educate people more, or if we could just create better policies or programs, and again, don't hear me wrong, I'm all for those. I believe those can make positive impacts, but can that truly eradicate all the evil we see in this world? Did the Nazis just need better education? Other people say our problems are just physiological. This is the argument we're hearing more and more and more today, especially if you're in school. Evil is the result of evolutionary biology and natural selection, survival of the fittest and all that. The problem, as noted professor of Columbia University, Andrew Delbanco, writes is, if you get rid of the idea of God and the devil, he's basically talking about ultimate good and ultimate evil, and say that all of our aggression is just the product of evolutionary biology, natural selection, and the survival of the fittest, then you have no right to be upset when evil occurs. It's just natural. Just look at nature. He's right. Do you get it? If... If natural selection is the explanation of life, then what right do we have to be angry when evil things are incurring? In fact, I'll take it a step further. How do we even know something is evil at that point? Who are we to decide? 
Now, a biblical worldview understands that there is evil in this world, and yes, some of it comes from us as humans, and some of it can be fixed through some of those things that I've been talking about here, but there are also spiritual forces at work in this world. Our battle is not just against flesh and blood. So let me just say it. Yes, I believe Satan still exists today. That there is evil still in this world, and he is just as dangerous today as he was in Jesus' time. And I just want to tell you what his goal is. His goal is to distort our identity. We are told in Genesis 1 and 2 that we have all been created in the image of God, and Satan hates that. And so he is going to go after that, and he does that by putting us in bondage. He puts us in bondage by distorting our identity. And so listen, that's a long introduction, I know. But here's the question I want you to be asking yourself this morning. It's not whether or not you're possessed by a demon, but whether or not it could be possible that you're possessed by other things that can keep you in bondage. Things Satan uses in our lives to cloud our true identity. Things that hold us captive, things that define us, things like... Addictions, habits, unhealthy patterns that we just can't break free of. Friends, I say to you this morning, Jesus came to set captives free from bondage. And I believe there is some good news for every single one of us in this room this morning, in this text. So with that, let's take our Bibles and turn them to Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 26. If you don't have your own Bible, we have some available there underneath you in the seat there or maybe in front of you, and you can find this on page 722. If you're still getting used to where things are in your Bible, Luke is about three quarters of the way back, and we're looking at chapter 8 of Luke, starting in verse 26. It's a longer text, so I'm going to kind of break it up into different sections here. Before we start, though, can we bow our heads and pray this morning? Oh, Lord, give us eyes to see. Let us see what is really going on in this world, what is really going on in our hearts, in our lives. You came to set captives free, and that's some good news for us. So we pray we would receive that today and learn how to share that with others as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's start in verse 26. It says, They, referring to the disciples and Jesus, sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. Now, if you weren't here last week, this is in reference to the story that Jeff talked about last week. And I'm going to use the map that uh, he used as well there. We were been discovering that Jesus was doing a lot of his ministry upper, up, up uh, left there in the Capernaum area. But we're told in this story last week that the disciples and him got into a boat and they started to make their way down to this region of the Gerasenes, it's called. This is where the Gentiles live. This is where the non-Jewish people were. But if you were here last week, you remember right in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, this gigantic storm hits the boat and Jesus is sound asleep during the whole thing. And the disciples are terrified, so terrified, they end up waking him up. And he, with one word, calms the storm. And at the end of that story, the disciples ask this very important question. You might remember it. It was, who is this man? Who is this who, with one word, can calm the storm? Well, let's not forget that question as we read the rest of this story. Who is this man? 
When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. The first thing we learn is that before this man encounters Jesus, he is about as hopeless of a case that we could possibly find. His life has been completely taken over. This poor naked man was a mass of bleeding lacerations, scabs, infections, scar tissue, and he was living in complete isolation. Satan had done a good job of destroying his life, of destroying his identity. We don't know much about him other than what these verses tell us. We don't know where he came from, if he was married, if he had a job. All we know is that he is in some pretty serious bondage. I don't know, when I read stories like this, it's hard for me to imagine what this encounter must have been like, right? Here they come, immediately they step off the shore, and this probably was more like an animal than a man is running towards them and approaching them. We're told in verse 29, he's so out of it that the the townspeople can't even restrain him because he's just got terrifying strength to break free from these chains. He is totally lost. So who or what could possibly break him free from this terrible condition? Well, that sets us up for this incredible encounter he has with Jesus. Let me continue in verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice. And again, I'm not going to do it like this, but can you just picture this? It must have been eerie. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Now read verse 30 out loud on your notes there with me. It says, Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. That's another word in the New Testament for hell. Apparently even demons hate hell. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. In verse 28, we see that the man runs to Jesus as soon as he comes to shore. What that tells me, what does that tell you? That even from a great distance, this man could sense that there was a power greater than him approaching There was one with authority who was coming, and so we're told he runs to Jesus, he falls to his knees, and he submits to Jesus' superior power, and then the man speaks. Now, you remember the question the disciples asked at the end of the story last week? I brought it up. What was it? Who is this man? Isn't it ironic that the one group of people, so to speak, in the entire Gospels who know who this man is are demons? Everybody else misses it, but this demon-possessed man knows exactly who has just touched the shore. He yells, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? They know who he is. He is Jesus, son of the most high God. Now, I want you to understand something. This is really important to understanding this text. Behind their question here, what do you want with us, was the popular belief That you could control or dominate another person through the use of his or her name. Like if I knew your true name, I would hold power over you. In ancient cultures like Israel, it, it just meant like if I knew your name, 
If I knew who you really were, I could control you and power you. I could gain the upper hand. I could control them. This is why in that weird story in Genesis when Jacob is wrestling with God, Jacob's like, what's your name? And God won't tell him, but he changes his name instead. Here the the demons know, like, listen, we're not going to have power or authority over this guy, but maybe if we use his name, he won't torture us. And so they beg him in a frantic attempt to control Jesus not to harm them. And then that leads to the climax of this text. As they try to assert their authority over Jesus by using his name, what does Jesus do? He turns the tables on them, right? And he asks them his name. And the response the guy gives is absolutely bone-chilling. He says, my name is Legion. Now, as a Jewish person reading this, you would have just gotten shivers right there because they would have known exactly what that meant. You see, Israel at this time had been occupied by Rome, and one of the designations of Roman soldiers was a legion, which consisted of up to 6,000 soldiers. And so what this man is saying is that there is a significant amount of evil at work in his life. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that was his real name? Do you think his parents named him Legion? Probably not. But what we see here is that he no longer knows who he really is. He can only identify himself with his condition. This is the key here. He has lost all sense of his identity. That's what Satan does. But now that Legion has been forced to reveal his name, the demons know we are in complete control by him. And as we read, Jesus needs nothing more than a quick word, just like we saw last week when he calmed the storm and he cast these demons out and they rush into a herd of pigs who drown into their death. What's the deal with the pigs, right? You always do this story and it's always like, what's with the pigs? I read 12 commentaries to give you an answer about the pigs. So let me just mention several things about the pigs. First of all, there's no indication in the text that Jesus called upon his foreknowledge here before this to know what would happen to the pigs when he cast the demons out into them. However, what I think is an interesting point to be made about this story is the demons were begging Jesus not to send them where? To the abyss. And where do the pigs take him? To the abyss. They take them to the abyss. Second, more importantly, I truly believe he wanted to show his disciples, the townspeople, and even us today who read this, Satan's absolute goal. His goal is destruction. This isn't a game. This is life and death stuff we're talking about here. Satan is powerful, and he is at work, and we need to know that. They needed to know that. But the most important reason I believe Jesus allows this is that he wants to show the value he places on one human's life. Now, we read this today, and we're, we care about animals in not the same way that people cared about animals back then. When a person was reading this back then, they would have immediately thought of wealth, right? Not, oh, the poor pigs. They would have thought, we just lost a bunch of money. This was like their livelihood. So what do we learn here? Jesus is saying that all the wealth in the world is not worth one human soul. That's how much I care for you. That's how much I love you. Some people might have difficulty with the fact that all the pigs died, but the bottom line is Jesus considered this one man's life, his soul, his identity, 
to be more important than even 2,000 pigs. I read a true story about a missionary who was working with a tribe in Africa, and he really wanted to translate the New Testament into their language. And so one of the tribe's people was helping him do that. And they came across this text, and the, the tribe's person was like, whoa, 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 stop just a minute here. How many pigs did you just say? He's like, 2,000. And the man just started breaking down, weeping, because this was a culture. That's what they did. That was their livelihood. They raised pigs. He goes, why are you weeping? He says, you don't understand. In our village, if somebody accidentally kills another person, the payment for that is one pig. What this story is saying is that Jesus values my life so much, he was willing for 2,000 pigs to die. Jesus places tremendous value on life. How much? Well, I'll come back to that. For now, though, let's finish the story. Verse 34 says, When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people, all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. The rest of this story reveals two outcomes. First, Jesus restores this man's identity and makes him whole again. There he is, fully clothed sitting at his feet. With one word, he is restored to wholeness. He is given his name back. And then he does what I think all of us would have done. He begs Jesus, can I become one of your disciples? Can I follow you? But Jesus has other plans for him. Don't miss this in the story, right? This man becomes the first person in the gospel commissioned to go and preach the gospel. The upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, isn't it? This wouldn't have been my first choice. I don't know about you. A man who wore no clothes, lived in the tomb among the dead, and had lost all sense of identity, hardly seems like a good candidate to be the first person to preach the kingdom of God. But that's how the kingdom of God works. He takes people like this man, he takes people like me, he takes people like you, and he empowers us to share his message of deliverance with others. And what is this message? Don't miss what Jesus says to him here. This is so key. What's the message? Remember the question the disciples asked? Who is this man? Jesus says to him, look at the end there, verses 38 and 39 there. Jesus says to him, go home and tell them how much who has done God has done for you. And then the next verse says, the man goes off and tells everyone what Jesus had done for him. Who is this man? He is Jesus, son of the most high God, the one who holds all power and authority to set people free from bondage and captivity. The second outcome, not so happy. What is the response of the townspeople to this healing? Do they rejoice? Does revival break out? Hardly. 
The people ask Jesus to leave because they are afraid, it says, of someone with so much power. This isn't the same kind of fear the disciples experienced last week, that kind of reverent awe. I ask myself the question, what are they afraid of? What do you think? What are they afraid of? You know what I think? I think they're afraid that Jesus is going to require something from them that they're not willing to give up. If he is going to take that away from them, their livelihood, he might ask even more. And so they're terrified. They wonder what he might want. So like many today, they turn their backs on Christ and ask him to go away because they fear he will disrupt their lives. And guess what, friends? He will. What's the question we just asked everybody who wanted to be baptized? Are you willing to let him be the Lord of your life this day forward? Well, they're not. And he doesn't force himself on anyone. And so he leaves. He gets in the boat and he leaves. Now, as we step back from this text, perhaps you're still wondering, what could this possibly still have to do with me? More than you think. Way more than you think. For in an extreme example with this man, we can find in a lesser degree something that is true in all of us. While we may not be possessed by a legion of demons, it's true that we all struggle with our true identity, with our true names. And that struggle can be just as intense as this man experienced. Listen, you don't have to be a raving lunatic running half naked through the streets to suffer inwardly. You can be a respectable member of society. You can have a fine job, a nice home. You can drive a great car and have money in the bank to, to spare. You can appear in this world to have it all together, and yet you sit here and you wonder, why do I feel so trapped? Why can't I break free from this bondage, from this habit, from this pattern? There's got to be something more. Friends, may I submit to you this morning, if you're falling on your notes, that we all carry things with us that keep us in bondage. There is not one of us in this room that does not carry things that keep us in bondage, that keep us from being set free to discover our true names. To me, that's really the key of this whole text. I'm willing to say to you this morning, there are things I keep hidden in my tombs. There are names that I wear, that I carry around with myself that are not my true name. There are things from my past that I allow to define me still today in the present. So we carry names, don't we? Carry names like divorced person, addict, unwanted, failure, Maybe we carry the name successful because that's how I identify myself, right? As long as I'm successful, then I'm okay. But what happens when that falls apart? Guilty, unpopular, different, adulterer, alcoholic. I love how C.S. Lewis described himself before coming to Christ. He said, my name was Legion. We were in a series last year in Ephesians. Some of you remember this good old t-shirt, right? We talked about our old self and the new self that Christ has given us. But we all walk around with this old self. All this stuff we wear, all this stuff we believe about ourselves. Things like, I'm unloved, I'm not good enough, I'm weak, I'm unworthy, I'm unreliable. If I just try harder, I'm going to earn this. I'm boring, I'm a failure, I'm abandoned, I'm powerless, I'm alone, I'm unwanted. I could go on and on and on. These are the names we wear. 
But the message of this text this morning is that Jesus came to set us free from the things that we allow to define us and bind us. And he does that by giving you a new name. Our story this morning of this demon-possessed man, I got to tell you, it's just a glimpse into the bigger story of why Jesus came in the first place. Just one glimpse into it. Jesus came to set people free from bondage, and he still does it today. He still does it today. Perhaps you have descended so deeply into sin and the scars in your life are so profound that you've given up on ever being made whole. You may even think, I'm incredibly naive standing up here this morning, like I live in some sort of ivory tower or something. Like if I talk with you, you would say, like, you can't possibly know what I've done in the past. You can't possibly know what's happened to me. You don't know the names that I have to wear around. I know more than you think. I've sat with enough people. I know myself well enough, but I also know the transforming power of Jesus Christ. I have seen people who are naked, living in tombs, sitting at his feet in their right mind. Are you deeply scarred? Do you have filthy habits? Perhaps a mouth that is totally out of control? Maybe you're dishonest. You've been a liar since you were a kid, and now you lie implicitly to everybody you love, and you hate that about yourself, but you can't break free from it. And so you wear the name. Listen, Jesus need but speak one word to you. He has that much power. He has that much authority, and you can be healed. But like this man in this story, you must come to him, get down on your knees in worshipful submission, and then Here's the hard part. Name the things that keep you in bondage. Bring them out from the tombs and into the open. Stop hiding and acknowledge the things in your life to him and recognize and submit and throw up your hands and say, listen, unless you do a work of power in my life, I am always going to be in bondage to this. This man is a picture of what it means to come to saving faith in Christ. He came to the end of himself, got on his knees, and said to Jesus, only you can give me a new name. Only you can set me free. And that's the business of Jesus. That's the business of Jesus. We sang it this morning, I am not the same. I am a new creation. Where do we get that? We just make stuff up. Like that, no. We get it from a verse like 2 Corinthians 5.17, which is on your notes there. Let's read that. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Did you hear that? Like really hear that? Has it gone down into your soul? Whatever things you might have done in the past, whatever mistakes that you have made, whatever false identities you have put on, all of them, according to this verse, have been put off. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. The best illustration I've ever seen of this is in the movie Toy Story. Seen that one? Toy Story is a a movie, a story about two toys in particular, Woody the Cowboy and Buzz Lightyear the Space Ranger. In the first movie, you remember Buzz Lightyear is convinced that he's a real Space Ranger. And nobody is going to convince him otherwise. They try to tell him, no, you're just a toy. You can't do the things that you think you can do. But no, he is a real space ranger. And then he discovers one day, in fact, 
He isn't. And it completely ruins his day. And he says these words, maybe you've said them, I'm just a stupid little insignificant toy. But his friend comes to comfort him and he says some amazing words to him. Woody comes to him and says, you must not be thinking clearly. Look, over in that house, there's a kid who thinks you're the greatest. And it's not because you're a space ranger, it's because you're his. And you remember the scene in the movie, if you saw it? If you haven't, I think you should watch it. Buzz takes his foot, he lifts it up, and he looks on the, on the bottom of his foot, and on the bottom of his foot, in permanent ink, is the boy's name who owns him. And a smile comes onto his face. And a whole new determination for his life comes. Friends, that's what Jesus does. He writes his name on our heart. He says, you belong to me now. You are mine. We are given a new name. A new name. You're like, what's this new name? Well, look on the back of your notes for a second. Those are just a few of the new names you are given in Christ. Just a few. I'm just taking a few examples from the plethora of Scripture here, right? We're given the name as redeemed ones, as adopted sons and daughters. We're given the name forgiven. We're given the name blameless, holy, saints. I like the one that says we are complete. Like you don't got to try anymore, Steve. You belong to me. You're complete already because what I have done. If, like this demon-possessed man, you have come to Christ on your knees, you've received his gift of salvation, your identity is not who you used to be anymore. It is wrapped up in what Jesus has already done for you. This is the message of grace. You are not defined any longer by being a divorced person, a failure, an addict, as unsuccessful, unwanted, a terrible parent, or a terrible spouse, an adulterer, or whatever it is you think defines you. You are accepted. You are holy. You are blameless. You are adopted. You are loved. You are his. You belong to him. I have said this many times in my years here at Cherry Hills, and I hope to say them many more. When the Father looks at you because of what Jesus has done, he no longer sees who you used to be. He sees his very own son. The only thing that will stop Jesus from changing your name is by doing what the townspeople did in this story. They sent him away. Some people just don't want to see themselves for who they really are, or they're afraid. They're afraid of the cost it might be to follow Jesus. Now, can I just assure you, if you're here this morning, maybe you're visiting, you're not sure about church, and your assumption is church is a bunch of perfect people, can we just assure you that's absolutely not true? Amen? It's a place of broken people who have happened to found freedom in Christ, who have been renamed now, I talked about this. How do we get this freedom? We get it because at the end of the book of Luke, Luke, somebody else is stripped of his clothes and made naked. We get it because at the end of the book of Luke, somebody else is crying out to God. We get it because at the end of the book of Luke, someone else is bleeding on a cross. 
We get it because at the end of the book of Luke, somebody else is driven into the tomb. You see, that's how Jesus dealt with evil. What he did is he absorbed evil and injustice and sin and death and all the false names Satan gives us, he absorbed it into himself. He died on a cross to pay for our sins so that someday he could wipe out evil completely without wiping us out. That's the secret of how you're set free from bondage. You've got to come to the point and realize he did it for you. Because he is Jesus, son of the most high God. And only he could do it. So only when you see how much he loved you, only when you see him being driven in the tomb for you, only when you see him being nailed to the cross for you, only when you see him beaten and bloodied for you, only when you see him doing that for you, can you come to the realization, like Buzz Lightyear, I am loved and I belong to him. If you're following, I'll close with this question. Will I come to Jesus to rename me and set me free? Now here's the thing. That may be for the first time ever in your life today or it may be for the thousandth time. How many of us every single day need a refresher, need a reminder? That is not who I am any longer. It's a daily battle for me. I don't know about you. I put that shirt on. I put those names on again and again and again. And yet grace calls out to me. Jesus' invitation to me is, that's no longer who you are. I have come to set the captives free. And aren't we glad he did? Let's pray. Oh Lord, who are we? Who are we? That you would bleed on our behalf. Who are we that you would need to cry out to your Father? Who are we that you would be driven to a tomb? We can't even fathom your love and your grace for us. We try, we try to express it in words, but it is beyond. It is like no love ever shown before or will ever be shown again. And yet we believe it. We need to hear it again and again. That we are adopted. We have been set free. We are redeemed. We are loved. And we are yours. You have written it in our hearts for all eternity. We belong to you. This is grace. And it's amazing. And we thank you for it.